0: Listeners and happy Saturday. Today's archival episode is from 2013, and it was the work of prior hosts, Sarah and Dublina. It's a collection of historical hoaxes from the Cardiff Giants to Mary Toss' claim that she was giving birth to bunnies. So (laughs) enjoy! Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we just talked about a famous radio hoax on a recent podcast, the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast. But hoaxes in general were around long before that. A lot of experts believe that the 1700s, also known to some as the Age of Enlightenment, gave birth to them. Which doesn't really make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, you would think that around that time it would be all about reason. Thinking really hard. Yeah, absolutely. But... I like the way that Alex Berza, who's the curator of the Online Museum of Hoaxes, he actually calls himself a hoaxpert, which I love, (laughs) a hoax expert. Good job description. He put it this way in an interview with a history magazine in 2009. He said, quote, in order to be able to perceive a hoax, one needs to see the world in terms of a contrast between reason and ignorance, fact and fiction. And that way of thinking only clearly came into focus in the 18th century. So we're going to take a look at some hoaxes throughout history, not necessarily broadcast ones like the War of the Worlds, but ones that fooled a lot of folks just the same.
0: And we promise we're not pulling any hoaxes on you. All of these are... True historical ho- hoaxes. Yes, not this time. Not this time. So, our first one is Cottingley Fairies, and it started with two little English girls named Frances Griffiths and her cousin Elsie Wright, and they were a couple of cousins, and they were basically just trying to put one over on their parents as kids sometimes do. They were 10 and 16 years old at the time, respectively. And so in 1917, the two of them used to play at the Wright's home in Cottingley, which was in West Yorkshire. And Francis would often come back home after a day of play, soaking wet after falling into the brook on the property. And the parents weren't really pleased with this. They'd grill the girls, what happened? Why do you keep falling into the brook all the time? And the girls' explanation was that they... Went down close to the water to hang out with the fairies that were there.
1: Naturally, right? Naturally. So the parents also naturally weren't buying this at all. So the girls asked to borrow a camera, and they produced two photos kind of as proof of their adventures. One with Frances looking toward the camera and a little troop of fairies kind of prancing around in front of her, and the second had Elsie entertaining a gnome. So Arthur Wright, after this, pretty much he didn't believe them at all. He quit loaning the girls his camera, so... Uh, The incident was all but forgotten until the summer of 1919, and that's when Arthur's wife, Polly Wright, she was pursuing an interest in the occult and the supernatural at the time, and she attended a lecture hosted by the local Theosophical Society.
0: Which they come up from time to time in these podcasts, I've noticed.
1: Yeah, whenever we talk about spiritualists and so forth. But she mentioned the fairy photos when she was there, and among the people to show a special interest in these photos was none other than Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, Our old friend. Yes, from the... who was the real Sherlock Holmes podcast.
0: Yeah, so Conan Doyle is, of course, most famous for for that Sherlock Holmes connection. But he was also a famous spiritualist at the time, too, and a believer in the supernatural. It was... Very important to him. And so he wanted to check out this whole fairy photo thing because he was, conveniently enough, working on a piece about fairies for the Strand magazine. And I think you mentioned it was a quite serious scholarly piece. It wasn't a piece of uh, Conan Doyle's typical fiction. No, it wasn't fiction
1: at all. And that's why he wanted to make sure he had proof before he wrote about this. So he may have had a few doubts of his own. So he personally visited the girls in Cottingley along with Edward Gardner, another leading spiritualist, and they brought their own cameras along and they asked the girls to take a couple more photos for them just to be sure before he wrote
0: this piece. And they had taken some measures at this point too, like marking the plates just so things couldn't be tampered with.
1: Yeah, they wanted to be extra sure that what they were getting was authentic, but apparently the test wasn't too hard because the girls passed it pretty easily, and some people accepted the photos as genuine, just as Conan Doyle and Gardner did. Others, including Elsie's father, Arthur Wright, remained skeptical about it. One commentator put it this way. He said, quote, For a true explanation of these fairy photographs, what is wanted is not a knowledge of occult phenomena, but a knowledge of children. So we see that it didn't take much for a lot of people to get to the bottom of this. And some skeptics also pointed out how much the sprites looked like cut out illustrations from a 1915 children's book. So
0: So that's probably the first thing you'd think, too, if you saw these pictures today, which you can by looking for them online. They look like nice little romantic illustrations of fairies. Yeah. And
1: some people point out that what we see today, if you do happen to Google the photos or whatever, you'll notice that these are the enhanced versions of the photos. So the original photos may have been a little easier to believe, but probably not that much. But Conan Doyle did believe this and, in fact, died believing this. And it wasn't until 1983 that the girls finally confessed that four out of five of the photos were fakes. According to a 2004 piece in British Heritage, Frances said of the most famous photo, quote, "'My heart always sinks when I look at it, when I think of how it's gone all around the world.'" I don't see how people could believe they're real fairies.
0: But there's one more thing to add to that quote. While the girls did admit that most of the photos were faked, they never admitted that the fairies were imaginary. And to her dying day, Frances swore that the final photo was real. So, well, an interesting little twist for the end of this hoax. Yeah, maybe leaves us a little something to wonder about. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, depending on how you look at it. So our next hoax involves a historical animal, which I know is a favorite topic of many listeners. And this one, of course, reminded me of the Mr. Ed theme song, too. I couldn't help but humming it in my head or singing it in my head the whole time I was researching this. But around the turn of the 20th century, this truly remarkable horse caught the world's attention, and his name was Clever Hans, and he was owned by a school teacher named Wilhelm von Austin. And this horse wasn't, I mean, he really made Mr. Ed look pretty low key with all of the stuff he could do. He could do addition and subtraction, multiplication, division. He could also select any color named to him from choosing among a group of
1: different colored cloths. And he couldn't talk and sing like Mr. Ed could, but he could communicate by stamping his hoof on the ground. So if you said, for example, what is 12 divided by three, you would get four hoof stamps.
0: Yeah. And we're going (laughs) to Just twist things entirely here, put it to a new level. Hans could even read minds. You didn't have to ask him a question out loud. You could put the question to him mentally and he would still get it right. And to to add even further to this, it didn't have to be von Austin who was asking the question. Anybody could do it, and the horse would still get the answers right. So it wasn't just a a simple matter of a trainer who had secret cues with his animal. initially causing this great sensation in Germany, which is where Hans lived, he started to get international coverage when this team of experts, they were called the Hans Commission, examined him to determine if von austen was perpetuating some kind of fraud somehow or another. Because people were
1: suspicious of this, right? They people, thought it was a hoax.
0: Yeah, people were very suspicious. This was not uh, within the normal realm of horse abilities. And the experts were pretty prominent men. There was a circus an army captain, the director of the Berlin Zoological Gardens, a veterinary surgeon, and other guys who are just really familiar with horses and with horse training and would be able to presumably tell if something fishy was going on. And after they
1: did their work, there was a headline printed in the New York Times on October 2nd, 1904, which read, expert commission decides that the horse actually reasons.
0: So it really was global news.
1: Yeah, but even more than that, they determined that the horse was not trained in the in the traditional ways. Instead, von Austin's techniques were more like those used to teach children. Which
0: makes sense since he is a school teacher. But some people still weren't convinced by this. And one man, Oskar Fungst, got von Austin's permission to come in and investigate the horse. And after some pretty serious examinations, he learned two things. One, The horse could only answer questions in which the answer was already known to the questioner. So you can ask what is 12 divided by 3, but maybe not some more outrageous piece of of division. And he could also only answer unless he could see the questioner. And so Clever Hans was used to being questioned with somebody right in front of him. If you stood by his side, he'd try to move his head so he would be looking at you face on. And if he had blinders on, he couldn't answer the question at all. So this gave Funk some ideas about the limits of Hans's abilities.
1: Right. Okay. So what did this mean? It suggested basically that there were some sort of unconscious movements coming from the questioner. And sure enough, when he looked more closely, he found that nearly every test questioner would ask a question and then bend his head forward, which made the horse start tapping. And then... As soon as the correct number of taps had occurred, the questioner would jerk up his head and the horse would stop. So Fungst found that while almost everyone made these movements, hardly anyone was aware of it.
0: Yeah, so this makes it kind of a hoax, but kind of not in a way. People were suspicious of it. That's very hoax-like, but it seems like nobody was trying to perpetuate fraud as we'll see in most of our other hoaxes. So, Fungst published a book on his findings in 1911, and it got a really glowing review from the New York Times, although I I liked that the article also noted, quote, it detracts nothing from the merit of his, being clever Hans's achievements, and leaves him as wonderful a horse as he was before.
1: I.e., we still love Hans. Yeah, we
0: still love Hans. We still think he's great. And today, you might still see mentions of clever Hans when uh, you're reading about animal psychology or articles about animal intelligence research, you'll see something sometimes called the clever Hans effect. And it's something that researchers have to be very careful of, that they are not either willingly misleading the animal or giving some sort of subconscious cues or doing it without even being aware of it.
1: So this actually led to something kind of useful.
0: Yeah, it did lead to something useful, unlike our next entry, which just led to a very peculiar hoax craze for a few decades there. <laughs> It started in 1869, when a couple of well diggers in Cardiff, New York, made this startling find while digging a well on the property of William Stubb Newell. Yes, after hitting
1: stone three feet down and clearing off the topsoil, one of them recognized a foot. And he said, quote, I declare some old Indian has been buried here.
0: So there was an ancient burial here, at least that's what it seemed, but pretty soon they realized that it wasn't just the skeleton of a normal man. It was 10 feet long, and clearly the remains of some sort of ancient giant. So Newell got right to work marketing this find, trying to make some money off of his farm. He set up a tent and charged $0.25 admission for people to come and take a peek at the so-called Cardiff giant. And he bumped it up after attendance was so good, he bumped it up to $0.50. And people were coming from all over the area to gawk and marvel at this strange stone man.
1: Yeah, here's how the first president of Cornell, Andrew White, described his own visit. He said, quote, lying in its grave with the subdued light from the roof of the tent falling upon it and with the limbs contorted as if in a death struggle, it produced a most weird effect. An air of great solemnity pervaded the place. Visitors hardly spoke above a whisper."
0: Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Except that White even himself realized that the skeleton was clearly made from stone. He actually realized it wasn't even a very good carving and that the two well diggers had would have had no reason to dig in that very spot, suggesting some sort of planned fraud. Yes, here.
1: very suspicious. So we have to backtrack a little bit to 1866 to figure out what happened. And that's when a New York cigar maker named George Hall or Hull got an idea. He was in Ackley, Iowa, investigating his brother-in-law for a late payment on a large shipment of cigars. And while he was there, he got into an argument with the Methodist revivalist over giants. And he later spent the night, quote, wondering about why people would believe these remarkable stories in the Bible about giants, when suddenly I thought of making a stone giant and passing it off
0: as a petrified man. Okay, so that's probably not where most people's train of thought would go after that argument, but he really runs with it. Once the once the thought strikes him. But he knows that he can't make the giant close to home because it's got to be secret. It's. Obviously, a a 10-foot stone giant, I think it weighed about 3,000 pounds, all said and done, would cause quite a stir. So in 1868, he hires some guys to quarry a block of gypsum from Fort Dodge, Iowa. And just so they don't talk and so it stays secret, he tells them that it's for some sort of new Lincoln monument that's going to be going up. And from there, he has his giant block of gypsum shipped to Chicago and carved again in secret by a German stonecutter. I think he's he's paid money and, and sworn to secrecy, in fact. Finally, the Finnish statue
1: was sent on a train to Cardiff where Hull met up with his cousin, Stubb Newell, and the men buried it on the farm. So they waited about a year, I think, to dig it up, right? Yeah,
0: just so it could get some... <laughs> authentic dirt stains <laughs> around it and, and look convincing enough. But this, it's a good plan. Yeah. If, if you're going to go through all the trouble, you might as well put in that extra year to make it work. But Once the giant was unearthed, though, the story didn't last that long. Newell even told some people that it was a hoax, which seems like a really bad idea if you're trying to make 50 cents ahead on your farm. But Hull realized he would have to lock somebody in to buying this giant, get a large amount of money up front before the story broke as a fraud. So he sold the giant to a businessman named David Hannum for $23,000, and Hannum took it on the road as kind of a syndicate hit show. It caught the attention from there of PT Barnum, again our old friend. He just pops up all the time. He offered to buy the giant for $50,000 and Hannum refused. So Barnum, who isn't going to be thwarted by not possessing the quote, authentic giant, decided to build his own replica and had an agent go to Hannum's show, make some covert wax models. And of course, all the newspapers were running stories about the Cardiff giant. So he had all of the measurements ready to go and um, just started touring his own plaster giant it did really well too Hanum though was pretty dismissive of this plastic copy of barnum's and all of those who paid to go see it and he even said there's a sucker born every minute which is obviously painfully ironic to <laughs> to hear that.
1: Yeah, but my favorite part of this is that it started a, kind of a petrified man trend, right? It
0: did. Well, I mean, it, it's easy to see how it would, too, if, if you could make so much money off of uh, having a petrified man in your backyard. But for a few decades, there, there were lots of petrified men turning up, giants or just normal size. I think Mark Twain even wrote a little newspaper article, a spoof, of finding a petrified man and it got picked up by real outlets. So, (laughs) um, yeah, for for a few years there, there was a rush in petrified men and then they lost their cachet,
1: you know. Yeah, you know, well, that's what happens when you find a hoax that works. You tend to see it kind of it gets over run and into over the again. ground. <laughs> but I have to say, this next one on our list is one, Sarah, that I'm really glad did not catch on. It is about a woman named Mary Toft, and it's a medical hoax that's been called the top fraud of the Enlightenment. It started when an English woman named Mary Toft, who was a mother of three already, had a miscarriage around September of 1726.
0: About a month after that, she and her husband, Joshua Toft, sent for the doctor, who in this case was a male midwife named John Howard, because she was having these full-on labor pains. And After she called in John Howard, she gave birth to a dead-skinned baby rabbit and then proceeded to continue giving birth to dead rabbits at the rate of about one per day. And Howard claimed that he could even feel and see these baby bunnies jumping in the womb before they died.
1: I know. He could see – he claimed that you could see kind of the bedclothes move over her stomach and that it would shake the bed sometimes. And then this
0: dead bunny would come out.
1: Yeah not pleasant at all. So obviously, people are skeptical of the story. And so people wouldn't think that he was lying. Howard put out an open invitation for other doctors to come check out the situation, maybe even deliver a rabbit for themselves and see the truth in this. was pretty invasive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. But several people took him up on that, including Nathaniel St. Andre, a, s- a surgeon from Switzerland, and also the personal surgeon of King George the First.
0: We have to mention, though, St. Andre had a interesting resume before he got into the doctoring business, which maybe makes it so he wasn't the most qualified person to be the public face of this. He was originally a dancing and a fencing instructor. kind of a a strange backstory
1: for him. That is definitely odd. But what's perhaps most surprising about this whole story in general is that how many doctors were convinced that the births were real. I mean, it wasn't just St. Andre, right? It was some other people, too, who really thought that this was happening. As a kind of proof of this phenomenon, St. Andre did an experiment in which he put the organs of the bunnies in water. And it's... Unclear, I guess, as to why that actually provided any proof, but it was supposed to have been good enough a for test.
0: the 18th century doctors. I yes, suppose.
1: some doctors were skeptical, though, including a Sir Richard Manningham. And to figure out what was going on once and for all, Mary was brought to London and put under a 24-hour watch, which pretty soon put a stop to these strange births. Then they discovered a porter trying to smuggle a rabbit into Mary at her hotel. Her sister, who was kind of playing nurse to her at the time, she also confessed to this but claimed that they were bringing the rabbit into her for eating purposes only, not for birthing purposes.
0: Oh, which sounds pretty fishy.
1: Yeah, well, it didn't look good to say the least, but Mary still— just
0: if you were giving birth to rabbits, would you really still be eating them? That is a very good point, (laughs) I mean, if you're
1: going to think this out a little bit. That's a good point, Sarah. I would think that you wouldn't want to eat meat in general, but apparently she didn't have a problem with that while she was staying in London. Um, But she did still claim, even after that incident, that she was telling the truth. Finally, though, they had to resort to threatening her. They
0: said basically they would do a painful procedure, operate on her the next time she was about to go into labor. Instead of just letting the bunnies be born, they would... They would do an operation and examine her uterus and so at that point she finally confessed the whole thing was a scam to get a pension and and live easy for the rest of her life specifically she said quote her goal was to get so good a living that i should never want as long as i lived which is another strange thing to think about that you would be pensioned for the very act of giving birth to baby bunnies
1: Yeah, well, it's strange to plan that as a way, I think, to get your your fortune. Lock in your future. But she didn't work alone. She said an accomplice helped her get the animal parts in return for part of the potential profit. So someone else may have been involved here, maybe multiple someone else's. Her husband was probably part of it at least a little bit. He, I think, was implicated in getting, He it was found that he had purchased the some of the rabbits. rabbits. Yeah, so Mary was charged as a quote, vile cheat and imposter
0: and thrown in jail, but she was later released. And the doctors didn't come out of it very well. Many of their reputations were ruined. And a popular purchase in the early 1800s in England was a book of writings about Toft, which was bound in, of course, rabbit skin. And one more note about these bunnies. Even though Mary Toft apparently did not lose her appetite for rabbit meat while perpetuating this fraud, a lot of people in England did. And rabbit stew took a little nosedive in popularity for for a short time after this fraud. So it's clear
1: that the people of England knew that the story of Mary Toft was definitely a hoax. But the last story on our list is one that is still sort of in question. People have called this a hoax for years, and it's cited as a common example of a hoax, but there are still some people who think that it might be true. So here's the basic story. It all started in Newark, Ohio in 1860, when a local county surveyor and amateur archaeologist named David Wyrick was excavating some of the huge earthen mounds in the American Midwest. And you may recall us talking about these quite recently in the podcast. But most people believe that these mounds were the work of pre-Columbian native civilizations. However, a common belief during this time period that we're talking about right now was that the mounds were built by the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Who, I think we, we even mentioned that in the Cahokia We may episode. have. They were believed to have vanished after being captured by the Assyrians. But Wyrick was a supporter of this theory, and that's kind of what made what happened next very suspicious.
0: All right. So Wyrick was digging near Newark's 50-acre octagon mound in 1860 when he discovered the keystone, which was the first of the holy stones in this shallow hole. And the keystone is basically a polished, wedge-shaped piece of sandstone. And it has Hebrew inscriptions on all four sides, and they read the laws of Jehovah, the word of the Lord, king of the earth, and the holy of holies. So this was really, really big news because some people thought that it finally confirmed the 10 lost tribes theory. Other people thought, well, maybe it's not an ancient Hebrew text. Maybe it's a Masonic keystone because of that shape and everything. It didn't take long, though, for some people to just call it out as an outright fake.
1: Yes, Charles Whittlesey, for example, a noteworthy Ohio archaeologist, he thought that it was neither Masonic nor Jewish, but a relatively modern artifact. The Hebrew, for example, was thought to be too modern to be authentic, to be from that previous time period when the Lost Tribes would have been around. So that November, Wyrick gets a little bit more evidence, maybe. He discovers another stone, the Decalogue Stone, in the Jackson Town Stone Mound, which is a few miles southeast of Newark. And it's found encased in a custom-made stone box. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, and it's shaped like a tombstone that's intricately carved all over with Hebrew letters that convey an abbreviated form of the Ten Commandments. So completely different from the keystone. On the front side, the inscription lines an arch that frames the image of a man named Moses. And the style of Hebrew was some unique archaic style. They couldn't quite place it. It wasn't the modern style that they found on the keystone, but it wasn't also ancient Hebrew. Right. It wasn't what they knew to be an ancient Hebrew style that was recognizable. So many people thought this was a fraud right away, too. It had too many scriptural mistakes and a lack of patina that made people very suspicious.
0: Should have left it in the ground for longer, like the old (laughs) Cardiff giant. But in his 1991 book, Fantastic Archaeology, Stephen Williams says that the stones fail every possible archaeological test. Their inscriptions are the only ones of their kind known and are not correct for the time period. Others, though, were wondering if ancient Hebrews were present in the Americas, why can't we find evidence of their settlements? So not just like, why can't we find their, their stones and their inscriptions, but why can't we find anything from their settlements?
1: That's a good question. One problem with this doubt about the stones, though, is trying to figure out, okay, if they're not real, who made them? Of course, some people thought it could be Wyrick— I read that before Wyrick's death, he actually wondered himself if somebody had fooled him. So it seems unlikely that he would bring that up if he didn't want to put suspicion on himself. So archaeologist Brad Lepper believes that it was actually a man named Reverend John W. McCarty who translated the text on the keystone for Wyrick overnight. So it just seemed too fast for him to be able he to do that. too familiar with it. Exactly. And the theory is that McCarty hoped the stones would prove that Adam and Eve were mother and father to all races, a good argument against slavery.
0: Yeah, so in 1864, two additional Hebrew inscribed stones, which are now unfortunately lost, were found during the excavation of a mound on the George A. Wilson farm, which is east of Newark. And people again got really excited, but soon a local dentist named John H. Nickel claimed that he himself carved the stones, introduced them into the excavation with the intention of discrediting the two earlier finds from Wyrick, of course. And these inscriptions actually just spelled out his name. So the plan did pretty much work. There's, these new stones, which are so obviously frauds, kind of made the, the earlier finds, uh, it, again, kind of like the Cardiff effect, all the, all the petrified men sort of make the original one not seem so great.
1: Hence why for years this has been believed to be a hoax. But then attention came back to the story around the 1980s or so. And there are some now who believe that the stones are authentic. They say they're just too detailed and thought out to be hoaxes. And the fact that they're so different from each other, they're so unique and distinct. Um,
0: Yeah, I think it was maybe the decalogue you were describing to me earlier. You said that it was just perfectly laid out. You know, there were no... There were no places where the words were crammed in. Everything was planned.
1: Yeah, it didn't look like you were just trying to quickly put this together to pull off some kind of hoax. It looked like something that had been meticulously done. But today, you can decide for yourself. Visitors can view the Holy Stones at the Johnston Homeric House Museum in Ohio. So I think it's only fitting that we leave off with one that's still kind of hanging in the balance or in question because we love to leave you guys with a question to answer. Um, even though, as Sarah said, when we started this, these are all true hoaxes. We did This is not a hoax in itself. We did that would not have make been these good up. Though, that it? would have been pretty clever. Maybe we'll do that some other time.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this Saturday Classic.